listening to the Mito podcast. I am Ashley. And I'm Megan. And we have a special guest with us today and we're talking to her all the way out in the UK. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, my name is Louise and I'm a Mito mum here in the UK uh, to a little boy called Freddie who is, he'll be five in September actually, and he has um, a version of Lee syndrome. And I actually met you through Instagram. You were mm. one of the first families that I found when Angie got her diagnosis. Um, when, when I started kind of looking for just more information, um, I actually, the UK popped out, popped up a lot more for me than um, the United States. So that's kind of how I, I found you. <laughs> that's interesting that the UK popped up a lot. Yeah, um, I think I saw maybe three families before I found anybody in um, in the U.S., but you were very helpful to me. Um, you were also one of the first people that I, that I spoke to, um, so it was nice to see that your story was on Instagram and that there was somebody that I, I could look at pictures or I could read your story, and uh, that's why I thought it would be great to talk to you on the podcast. Um, just to, to one, get another story out um, and for you to maybe just talk about Freddie and see how, how your story or your mito journey began. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I don't know where to start really. If I start from when Freddie was born, I had him at home, my choice. I wanted a nice, the irony of this whole thing is having to, have operations myself for fertility and having spent a lot of time in hospital myself I decided I wanted to have um, my baby at home with as little medical intervention in his life as possible my pregnancy had been wonderful um, his birth nothing went wrong everything was was perfectly fine it was as soon as he came into the world it was apparent something wasn't right. He, um, he wasn't breathing. He needed to be resuscitated. Um, he couldn't feed. We were both rushed to hospital straight away. He spent six days in special care. He had seizures. Um, he had an emergency dose of phenobarbital to stop those seizures. Um, they stopped them within 48 hours. He had an MRI, um, he was a day old I think when he had that I found it incredibly traumatic um, and they found a bit of blood at the back of the brain um, which they said was perfectly normal to see after a vaginal birth um, and then he started feeding and and everything from there went went up and everything was good and we were discharged home um, and he was hitting milestones. He was doing what he should be doing when my friend's children were doing it. You know, he in, in no way, shape or form did he see, seem different until around six months. So I can talk now, having pieced all the information together from what happened then. 
and understanding mito it it's funny because once you get the diagnosis certain things fall into place don't they whereas at the time you had all the pieces but you couldn't put them together and then with hindsight all of a sudden you can see the jigsaw right in front of you and what it's supposed to look like so he'd got a chest infection and I'm sure you guys know as well that quite often the onset of the condition can happen if it's not evident immediately, it can happen and be triggered by them getting poorly because then the mito struggles um, and it compromises things. And then the, bo the body just says, what? Well, I don't have the energy to cope with all of this. So he lost milestones at that point at six months. At the time, I didn't really realize, I just knew something was wrong. I didn't realize the extent of it. I just knew he suddenly seemed different. He'd lost his emotion. He didn't smile anymore. He didn't cry anymore. Um, I called, um, we have health visitors here in the UK who um, come out and help you for, I think, well, they don't help you, but they check. They, they do medical checks and welfare checks. Um, she reassured me that he was just a content child, content six, seven month old, and that's why he wasn't crying. Didn't really feel comfortable with that myself. Um, he didn't seem to roll over anymore. I couldn't remember when he'd rolled over. He wasn't sitting up. Um, so he, because of everything that had happened at the time of his birth, he was under a paediatrician. Which you don't, everyone who has a baby here in the UK doesn't, isn't automatically allocated a paediatrician. We just go to a general doctor. Um, whereas if you've had some sort of trauma around birth or when they're, when they're first born, then you're allocated a paediatrician to see regularly. Um, so James made an appointment to see his paediatrician. The day before, so he was eight months old now. Um, the day before... The appointment, the appointment was on a Monday, the Sunday evening, it had been really hot weather and he was still coughing a bit. So this cough, had, it hadn't really gone. He'd had antibiotics. He'd, he'd struggled a lot more than we appreciated. He'd struggled at the time. Um, he started making strange body movements that we hadn't seen. He was flinging both of his arms up above his head at the same time coinciding with this he was he was holding his breath whilst this was happening and it was um it was repetitive so we rang um not an ambulance we rang the stage before that to ask for help and say what do what do we do this is happening our baby's eight months old and an ambulance was dispatched immediately on the basis of they thought he was having seizures when the ambulance got to our house the paramedics came in and they took a blood sample from his foot and he didn't, he didn't even flinch. He didn't know awareness of what had happened. And the paramedic just looked at me in the eyes and said, is that normal for him? And I said, yes. And she said, it's not normal. He's an eight month old baby. He should be crying. I've just put a needle in his, in his heel and he's not even flinched. I got in the ambulance with him. He continued to seize the whole way to hospital. We got to hospital um, and one of the doctors came out and said, oh, um, 
can you tell me about his development? How's his development? And because we were seeing the paediatrician the next day or due to see the paediatrician the next day, we'd made a list of everything. We'd gone through, thank goodness for mobile phones, we'd gone through videos, we'd gone through photos, we'd documented um, everything that he wasn't doing or everything that had changed. So I looked at this doctor and said, funny, you should ask. He doesn't roll over anymore. I don't know when he last cried. And I saw the doctor's face change. And that's when I knew this was, this was serious and he was really, really concerned. Um, so that was the Sunday night. The Monday morning, they did an MRI. Or was it an EEG? Perhaps the Monday morning they did an EEG. It was seizure activity. He was diagnosed with infantile spasms, quite an aggressive type of seizure, fairly common with um, all types of Lee syndrome, I think. And on the Tuesday morning, they did an MRI. So what I should probably say here is that he had an MRI, a follow-up MRI when he was three months old, after the one that he'd had at birth it showed a completely perfectly structured brain no issues no problems at all the mri he had at eight months showed a lot of white matter and a lot of brain damage it was that moment we were sat down and told this is metabolic this is a metabolic condition it might be a mitochondrial disease we need to start doing more tests. First time I'd ever heard the term mitochondrial disease. So, so you ask, what, what's that? What is it? Is it like cerebral palsy? Like, how, how do we deal with this? And that's when you hear the words, I'm sorry, there's, I'm going to get emotional. I'm sorry, there's no okay. cure. Is it, <laughs> life limiting and there's nothing we can do and I remember like he was Freddie was in hospital at this point seizing like constantly on and off all day and I remember James my husband turning around and just saying how long do we have then and I just remember the doctor saying it's not going to be immediate but I can't tell you I'm afraid and then he's and then the next day the Wednesday he had a lumbar puncture because they wanted to um, get the best sample of lactic acid that they possibly could. I think from at that point, they were convinced it was mitochondrial. Um, he had high lactic acid. He did at birth as well, but at the time, I, I never asked anyone about it. I didn't know. Um, and that's when they started doing blood tests um, to try and locate the gene. They told us it could take months um, and they didn't, you know, they, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack, isn't it? There's so many different types. Um, and that day as well, we started, he started intensive steroids for his seizures. So it was the Wednesday we finally got his seizures under control. He had a particularly bad one immediately after his lumbar puncture and he needed oxygen. And I just, I just remember carrying him back from that room after the lumbar puncture and watching his body just start 
convulsing in my arms and I ran to his bed and I put him down and I slammed the emergency button and it was like slow motion every doctor and nurse ran to his bedside and I just remember standing there thinking this this can't be my life like who lives like this what you know nobody talks about it no but I've never met anybody who's had a a sick child a sick baby before and I just remembered just and the nurse turned to me and said mum can you step inside the curtains they were drawing the curtains around his bed and I just I remember everything so vividly from that week in hospital but on the and I guess you guys have have periods like this as well when it's so vivid and everything is so clear but it's also like a dream because you almost just can't believe it's happening to you. Um, so that was when we found out it was mitochondrial disease. It was the Saturday we were sent home. We didn't want to leave hospital. Um, his paediatrician basically convinced us and, and, and said, you you know, this is your new life and you need to go home, the three of you, and work out how you move forward. We'll, we'll be there. You have open access to the hospital, you know, all the over. I know it's different for you guys. We have a free healthcare service. You guys obviously have insurance and things work a bit differently. Um, for us, we had at that time, Freddie was allocated an epilepsy nurse. Um, a neurologist at another hospital he was also allocated a specialist neurologist a more senior hospital to our local hospital he was given a physio he was given a, um, a speech and language therapist so we were encouraged to go home you know this is the support you're going to have you're not going to be left on your own we're going to help you we, we can offer support, we can offer supplements and, and we can hold, hold your hand and walk it with you. He was the, at that time, he was the only child in our area under our hospital. Um, his neurologist, she'd come across children that were like, that, were, that hadn't had a confirmed diagnosis of mitochondrial disease. He was the first child she had that was confirmed. Um, and, and we didn't, it was almost like going home meant it was real. And, it, and that, was, I, that was really, really hard. Going into hospital, knowing something wasn't quite right, thinking a lot, a lot of different things, but all things that still saw me growing my son, seeing my son grow up into a, into a man. And then coming home, feeling like someone's just turned your whole world upside down. And what made it even worse was nobody knew what to say to us. You know, f friends, family, no, nobody knew what to say. The, the most common thing is science is great. Science is coming on. I'm sh there'll be a cure. They'll fix him. It's going to be fine. And, and like you guys know as well as I do, not for a long time. It's, you know, we, and my husband and I do all we can to fundraise here, here, but we, 
we're doing it in Freddie's name, but we know he's not going to benefit from it. It will be someone who's probably not even thought about having children yet. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe even their child, it will be them who benefit from it, but you have to do it because it's, it's your hope. Um, yeah. And then we, then we came home to our new life and found out that all the blood tests that they'd taken, they couldn't find anything. So we were then asked to go into another appointment with the specialist neurologist that I mentioned, who had a specialist interest in um, mitochondrial disease. And she examined him. She basically she took one look at him and turned around to his local neurologist and said three gene mutations she wanted him tested for. And she said, I'd like the blood tests done now and we'll get them back when we get them back. And then it was the day after his first birthday, we were called for an appointment at her hospital, which is further away. And I think we were there for about, I think the appointment was about three hours. And we were told um, the gene mutation he had um, of the specific type of Lee syndrome he had. Um, his, uh, his epilepsy nurse came with us from our local hospital so that she could sit in on it as well. And um, because we had prof mito professors there and there was quite a team there that we met to answer all our questions and, and tell us every, everything they knew, I guess. So, so that's the, that was the start, the start of our journey. Um, I'm impressed that your hospital knew about mitochondrial disease. I know we hear so many stories and just on our own mito journeys, a lot of doctors and, you know, different facilities aren't even familiar with it. So um, I'm glad that you came into contact very early with people who, you know, at least if they weren't experts in it, they knew of it and they knew that they needed to send you on for further, further testing. That's, that's, that's a good that's a good start that a lot of people don't actually even receive. Yeah, and I and I think that is the part of our story. And I think some people who don't live in our world think it's strange of me to say, but I always say we're lucky. Like we're lucky with how he was diagnosed, who he saw. We were really like I know people years and years down the line are still maybe maybe it's my tweet that like we don't know and we were it, do feel like we were really lucky they were on the ball everything was very quick they knew what they were looking for they knew what tests they needed to do and it was bang 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 and you know and we started we started getting answers and um I do feel really great at the time I didn't because I didn't want to know I've at the time I wanted to live in this ambiguous bubble and just not know because then I couldn't be hurt if I didn't know um but now you know, years later, I'm, I feel really grateful for that part of our journey. Um, you said <laughs> when you were talking about uh, when you, when they were first basically giving you the definition of the lifespan, we had a doctor tell us um, similar that, you know, we're, we're just on the cusp, like we researched and sciences is almost there. We're so close to a cure. And when you first hear that, when you don't, when you first get this diagnosis and you hear that, when you hear close, you think, okay, there's a chance, there's hope. It's around the corner. Like that's not far away. 
And then as you get more into your journey and you, you research a little bit more, you realize around the corner is, is not close. It's, it's not at the front door. It's, it's still very far away. Go ahead. Almost false sense of hope that your child, the, that they're going to make it. And you still hope that, I mean, you, you can't take away that you still, no matter what, want that to happen. So you can't lose that hope, but it is very hard to hear that we're close. And, and essentially, if you think about 50 years, yeah, we are a lot closer, even the last 10 years, especially with mm-hmm. genetic testing and things like that, getting the diagnosis. And I think once, maybe once genetic testing gets better, um, maybe the, the, the so-called cure will be around the corner because, because we're getting a better idea of who's affected by Mito and what kind of Mito. And I think for a doctor, um, with all the knowledge that they have, and when they're talking to a parent close to them, could be 20, 30 years. It's like, you know, I've been working on this for 15, 20 years, and in another 10, maybe we'll have it. But as a parent, you're thinking, oh, a cure for my child, you know, before my child um, passes away. And, you know, sometimes that's very quickly, and sometimes it's not. But, you know, our timelines are very different than probably what a doctor thinks about. Um, you're not used to thinking about well how long does it take to get a cure how long does it take for you know the fda to approve drugs and you know different things like that i mean now all the research you know we've done and the symposiums we've been to and it's it's like you see the trials and you see all the time that it takes and it's just it's it's an extensive amount of work and time so okay so we had just left off from um talking about hope and and where we are with a cure um and with like with fundraising that also struck a chord with me too um it it not only just gives you yeah it gives you the little bit of of hope to hang on to but the best part I think about fundraising is just getting the word out and reaching people because the more people that know about it the more likeliness that we might be able to inspire kids to be doctors or researchers, scientists, things like that. So it's not just about the money that you're fundraising for, for an organization, but it's about inspiring knowledge. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. And we've got a charity. I mean, you've probably seen me mention it on Instagram here in the UK called the Lily foundation. And it was started by Lily's mum, Liz, um, Lily had mitochondrial disease and she died when she was still a baby but at that time that was 10 years 11 years ago this year is it I can't remember um but at that time there there was nowhere for Liz to turn to no one for her to to talk to about it so she started the charity um so that connects I think it's 300 families in the UK um who have a child um, or a young adult with a mitochondrial disease diagnosis so all of the fundraising that we do um, my husband and I do in Freddie's name is for them uh, because they not only do they put money into research they have to they pay for I think it's two researchers at a specialist mito services clinic here and um, they also connect the families so every week, every year, they do a long weekend for families all to get together 
Um, they have the specialists that we have here come. So on, on a Saturday, they will do lectures um, and be available for families who have questions or most of us will see them with our kids in some capacity anyway. Um, the particular clinic is, I think it's like five or six hour drive from where we live. So we don't go there so much in person anymore. We speak to them on the phone. We're lucky Freddie's stable, so we don't feel we need that huge input. Um, but we get to see them every year at the weekend. And, and, you know, they let us know about research, drug trials, clinical trials, everything, everything that is or, or perhaps isn't going on, even things that haven't been successful. And the charity also work with our healthcare system here, the NHS. So between them, they've come up with a website um, that you can access here that's, that has, it's, it's a mito website. So it has all the, the main types of mito and, and symptoms and diagnosis and, you know, all the information that you would need and, and the charity help with that as well. So just makes you feel like you're you're doing something because otherwise you just feel so helpless don't you yeah so can you tell us a little bit about freddie today yeah sure so freddie is he'll be five next month he is stable i guess that's how we would say it he's 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 non-verbal he can do some signs he's very communicative with his face he's very cheeky um he's got the biggest eyes and he will and the biggest smile and he can get you to do pretty much anything um just by batting his eyelids at you (laughs) (laughs) um he has hypertonia his epilepsy is very well controlled he had a regression um in 2017 so just before he was two and he had to go over to peg feeding prior to that he was orally fed um and and hydrated um but then he went over to a tube in his tummy to be fed and hydrated that way this year they actually did a a video of him swallowing again and um he's had a huge improvement so he's allowed to drink again and he's eating orally again we still use the tube because he needs it for so we can make sure he's getting enough um but i mean basically we're we're living in uncharted territory when we got his diagnosis we were given a lot of information to read and that information said um children with his gene live on average two years following diagnosis so we take his diagnosis from eight months because that's when we found out it was mito so as far as we're concerned he's defying the odds and he's already going against what we've been what we were told and and what how we managed our own expectations um we didn't expect that he would still be here um, we certainly, certainly didn't expect he would have the life that he has. Um, he has a walking frame, so he can't walk unaided. He can't sit unaided. He has equipment, but he is so happy navigating his world and his walking frame. He's, he's so cheeky. Um, and he, until the pandemic, 
um, he was going to nursery three days a week, um, which was which was huge. Again, it was something that I never even dreamt of. I gave up work to be his full time carer, as as you do, especially you know when when your child's so reliant on you when they're not verbal, when they need so many medications and so much support. But I took him there to play for a year before. I left him and we trust them. Um, they, would, they would ring up and, and let us know any germs that were anywhere near the place and we would pick him up and bring him home. Because um, as, you know, as we all know, that they can't afford to get sick. And we've had too many instances where things have left him so poorly in hospital um, that you just can't risk it. The, the communication with them was always excellent and they were always really respectful. It was a mix, um, special needs nursery and neurotypical child nursery. So it wasn't just Freddie there who had medical complications. Half the kids that they have there have medical complications. So they're, they're very respectful. They're very on the ball and they're very good at communication. But it was, we never dreamed that far. We never thought he would be able to have that sort of independence and that sort of freedom and he loved it and and you would take him to nursery and he's already throwing his arms up to his key worker because he wants a cuddle you know he's not he doesn't care mommy go, go home mom i see you know i'll see you later for dinner that's fine <laughs> and, it, and it was lovely it was lovely to see him have those relationships of his own um and it was nice to have a bit of rest <laughs> whilst yeah. I knew that he was, you know, his key workers loved him like, like their own. And, and a lot of the staff that work there have medically complex children themselves, which is why they heard about the nursery in the first place. And, and quite often why they end up working there. Um, it, it's sad. He's not, he's not had that for the last five or so months, but you know, we're living in our, chartered times aren't we and he's happy at home but and and even the thought of him turning five I just birthdays I find hard I don't I don't know um I don't know if that's a common thing but I I will get really emotional about his birthday split reason one because of the amount of gratitude because I know far too many people who have lost their children and, and it's not natural. And, and so every, t every achievement, everything we do every day, we're so grateful. But then on, on the flip of that, I find birthdays really difficult because will he see another one? What comes next? the next one's in 12 months that is it and, I, and it's the same for Christmas with me as well will there be another Christmas will what will happen in the next 12 months if there is what would it look like how will he be he can't keep progressing at the rate he is he it will reach a stage he's his body just won't allow it because he won't be able to supply enough energy to keep going at the, at the level he's going, especially he's big for his age. He's, he's heavy. I, and 
even in hot weather all of a sudden he can't do anything because he's his body's just going oh this is too much this is too much i can't can't keep this battery can't keep running at this level you know i know you guys you know very competent understand how it works and and so that is difficult birthdays i find a, a real mix emotion and then he's due to start school in september and that i just i think i've put my head in the sand and and ignored a bit that it's supposed to be happening when we got his infantile spasm diagnosis we were given a lot of information to read at that stage and the statistics were one in five um children diagnosed with infantile spasms don't reach their first birthday further one in five will never make it to school we had prepared that school was never going to happen like emotionally we had prepared that that happened with freddie that wasn't going to happen in in our family as much as you can something like that like we never head to it um, so that i'm struggling with at the moment i think he's he's ready for it since he he loves the children he loves being around other people he's very social um he's very happy with other people and he yeah he just he adores children tries tries to copy what you know neurotypical children do and wants to be like them and and loves watching um but emotionally it's i it's difficult for me to navigate when we had angie we had i had um we were obviously told all the same same information and it was terrifying to think of her ever going to school. And we did have a class that um, she was welcome into uh, once a week. We would we were allowed to go in if, if we chose to. And we went maybe twice, and it was awesome. It was it was great to be around the other kids and the other adults and the teachers. But it was too scary because every time I looked at a toy, I was like, when was the last time that was cleaned or what child or adult had that first? Did they wash their hands? When it was just, it was too much. And I realized early that I was going to homeschool and that was my only option because I, I wanted to protect her. But at the same time, that was, as she got older, that realization got harder because, because she loved people, because she loved kids and being around people and learning and I remember we had a play date at the house and we were super careful. We had signs on our house that said, you know, these are our rules. If you enter, you have to wash your hands. You have to sanitize right after. If you feel any type of illness, even if you think it's allergies, don't enter. Um, so when we, when we did get to have a play date, it, it wasn't very often. But I remember this one play date and I watched her watch the other child and I could see the wheels turning in her head and, and her trying to mimic what that kid was doing. And it was just, sorry. <laughs> oh, I don't apologize. It was so amazing to just see her brain work because you have so many doctors tell you 
all the limitations and you don't know what they're taking in and you hope and you, you, you treat them like any other child, but you just don't know. And so watching her do that was so amazing. And it felt like, I felt like I was almost jailing her because she couldn't be around anybody. And I wanted that for her so bad. I think. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. (laughs) I was just gonna say she was so smart and it was amazing to see what she learned from that other kid. (laughs) It was beautiful. I think, I mean, Troy is 12 years old, um, but we've had very much the same experience. Like you said, with Freddie, um, he went to a preschool um, class that had neurotypical kids and kids with special needs. And he would get so excited just watching the kids. Of course, I would go with him. Um, I'm, I'm a teacher, but I was only working 60%. So he would only go in the morning and I would go with him. Um, because like Ashley said, I was so afraid of like, surfaces and kids that were sick and you know as much as you get to a point where you're you know close with the teachers and and the aides in there it's just you know parents send their kids in sick they send their kids with and you know you can't control that so it was it was such a, a hard thing but he loved it he loved it he loved watching the kids still to this day he loves watching the kids and he was in that for about two years, um, and then he went into kindergarten, and um, it was just hard. He would, their kids were just getting sick, and we had to keep pulling them out and pulling them out, and finally, our district has something called the home hospital program, where the teachers come to the house, and so we started only doing that during flu season. I'd pull them out Um, And at every IEP meeting, I'm in tears. Um, You know, it's such a struggle to have your child have those experiences and to keep them safe and healthy. It's like, it's just such an impossible mix. And I would just, like I said, every IEP meeting, I'm crying going, well, we're probably going to go in the hospital. And now for the last probably three or four years, he's completely been on home hospital. Um, And he just, he doesn't get the interactions with kids that I wish that he did. Um, and that, like you said, it, you know, sometimes it makes me feel like I'm not doing what I could or that, you know, you're keeping your kid in jail, but you just have to measure, you know, and do what's best and think, are you trying to keep your child alive and letting them have the experiences they, you know, that they need to. I have been staying home for the last two years with Troy now. Um, And so before the pandemic, of course, you know, we would go to the library once or twice a week when they would do readings with other kids. And, you know, there's children's museums here that I would go when they do music time and, you know, just trying to get that interaction with other kids. But it's so scary with Mido because you just don't know. I mean, they can get the flu and that's it. That's it. You know, it's a scary thing. And I completely agree. And we, Freddie caught sickness bug once and it, we went to a soft play and he was hospitalized the next day. He was in hospital for a week. He was really, he, he was sick three times, three times. The impact that had on his body, seven days in hospital, the hospital was shocked 
they couldn't believe the impact, the knock-on effect it had had on his body having this sickness bug. And since then, we don't we don't take him to birthday parties. We, you know, sorry, he can't come. Soft play, I can't do that to him. And it and it is really really hard. And because you you want to give them quality of life but you want them to be alive and it's and you never know if you're doing the right or the wrong thing and 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 that terrifies me about school at nursery there was about 10 kids there'll be 15 kids in his school class and we have um like this because he's got special needs over here we have a, a legal document will be drawn up or it already has been of all his needs, everything he needs, what he needs in place. And on that document does say about sickness and how we need to know everything that is happening in that space. But like uh, James and I were talking about it and I said, but what if he goes there and catches something and he, and he dies? Like, and, and, and for me, I think that is the hardest thing about living with Mito is one day it something will happen your your child will get sick and I know like actually I know you've lost Angie and and I just obviously we all try to to avoid germs and bugs and we've got a sign outside our house at the moment and you just they just don't know what to do for the best. It's so hard and you feel guilt with whatever decision you make. And that never goes away. No, I'm sure. It never goes away. No, it doesn't. And, and right now, just with the circumstances, it's, 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 yeah, it's, I mean, I know that this situation is super difficult on so many people, but when you have a child that you know if they caught this that they would perish there's no way that they're making it through this um it just makes this whole situation it's like our our worst nightmare we already battle the flu season and the different things but a pandemic is like and when i know it's really hard for my husband when he sees people not taking this seriously and you know we go out running and nobody's wearing a mask and people aren't you know following the things and it's you know, we know that we look at life from a whole different perspective, but it's just so hard. It's just, it's hard. And it doesn't, unfortunately, and, that never, that never goes away. It's extreme right now, but it's, you know, we have doubt. the pandemic, it's, it is especially hard. And, you know, we've been at home for over five months now and, and I find myself getting really emotional and, and, very responsive to people who aren't respecting the rules who don't think it applies to them who think oh if I get it I'm going to be fine so you know it doesn't it doesn't matter I can do whatever I want and and aren't thinking about the chain the knock-on effect that can that can have mm -hmm. and it's yeah I think and, and I think as lockdown here has eased and people have been getting back to normal I found myself much more emotional and I found it much harder because when everyone had to be at home I felt a bit like 
oh people understand like what flu season is like for us Mm -hmm. people understand what winter is like for us how we have to live people understand why we ask people to wash their hands why we won't let them come round um if they if they've coughed do you know and but then as everyone's in such a rush to get back to normal they they quickly forget and we're still at home because we're too terrified Mm-hmm. and then i and then you know we keep him at home for this amount of time and then send him to school and he he gets something and the worst happens anyway like what was the what was the point what was the point in keeping him at home all this time to protect him and not let him see his grandparents and not let him see his aunts and uncles or his cousins it's yeah it's scary school terrifies me i don't know what we'll do come september (laughs) yeah there's no there's no right and wrong answer to that because it doesn't it doesn't matter what you choose as a mito Mm -hmm. family it doesn't matter because regardless you will always look at the opposite side of it like you are making the right decision i think everybody is making the right decisions for themselves right now and and i think that you have to really trust that and believe in that and kind of put your foot down to yourself and and whatever happens in the future whatever happens tomorrow or next week or in September or in a year you just have to know that you're making the best decision for yourself right now because yeah. it is very very easy I can tell you both <laughs> I, I think back about Angie being in the hospital every day and I have to force myself to believe I made the right decision. It's not easy. <laughs> and I wish that nobody else would have to feel this way, but that's just kind of powering the course for having a mitodiagnosis. You're always gonna wonder if you should have made a different decision or 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 what would seem today is a better choice, but you can't, you can't change the past. You can only make the best decisions you can for today. And, and that goes for birthdays too. Um, having Angie just made me realize you have to go big or go home. And no matter what it is in life, you have to, you have to celebrate it. You have to make it the biggest, best event possible because that is what life is. We don't know when our time is and we just have to, celebrate and and try to be as happy as we possibly can. I know you were speaking about the birthdays and how that makes you feel. I mean, like I said, Troy's 12 and every birthday, like you said, is, is an emotional thing and you don't know if there's going to be a next one. And, you know, Troy, you know, I have a very close knit family. Um, and so every birthday was, all right, where are we going? Are we going to Hawaii? Are we going to Disneyland? Are we, you know, Troy's birthdays have always been these crazy things. I know when I met my husband now, he's not Troy's father, he's his stepdad. He was like, what? What are we planning for Troy's birthday? I'm like, we don't know if we're going to get another one. So we do as much as we can, as big as we can for him and whatever he's into, whatever he wants to enjoy that's what we do and we do it big and it's always a small very small group but you know it's just because you just don't know and it's such it's such a huge thing to make that next year and i know you know the statistics only 50 percent 
of children with Mito lived past the age of 10. And it was just like when his 10th birthday came, it was like, you know, we're here, but how much longer do we have? So it's just, yeah, birthdays are super emotional. So that's totally normal that you <laughs> feel that way. And, and they're just, they're a special time for so many different reasons. So we we're the same. <laughs> we go big too. We, you know, we, I always look up on the calendar. What's, you know, what date is it next year? And we already have our plan set from what we, what we would do depending on when it is. And, and this year we, we won't be able to because I wouldn't feel comfortable being out around people. So this year, my goal is I'm, I've never made him a birthday cake. And so I'm going to make him the best birthday cake he's ever had like that. We can't go out. We can't, you know, go away like we normally would. So we're going to just do it here. Just the three of us. We'll have a lovely time. We'll do all his favorite things that he loves doing in the day, which is mainly watching telly and and eating cake so that's what we're gonna do <laughs> yes that sounds great <laughs> <laughs> but talking about um angie and and how clever she is and how you can see her her brain going and and how she was taking everything in and and that is the same as freddie and i think people see our kids from the outside and because they're not talking and they're not doing typical things people think that their brains aren't still going and Freddie is so clever and he does not miss he doesn't miss anything like he surprises me I can think he's doing one thing and then you know I maybe I'm eating a biscuit and I can think he's involved in this activity over here and he'll just go like that and take the and I'm just like how did you even how did you even see that I had something and he doesn't or he'll start laughing at something perhaps James dropped something off the side and he's watching telly and he'll just crack up laughing and look over and James and I'm like, how do you, <laughs> doesn't miss anything. Like they're so clever. They really are. What, um, what gene is it that Freddie has that's affected? I need to get this right now. 8993 T to G. Is that it? It's, it's, um, the maternal it's maternally passed down what's angie's did you get a gene diagnosis you do have one don't you i do uh, i don't remember the numbers <laughs> um it is maternally inherited but uh they haven't found it in me um so they don't know how she got it passed down um they okay. tested down to one and a half percent, they did a buccal swab and a, and a blood test and, uh, and both that didn't turn up. Um, so it either means that I actually don't have it, um, or that it was, or it, it possibly, well, one, it, it could be so minuscule that they can't find it or that I may have just had a, an egg that was bad. Um, uh, and for our listeners, I'm not, I don't remember if we said this in a previous podcast or not, but um, they can't test like the rest of my eggs to tell me for sure if it will happen again. Um, so it's, it's, it, you, you go through all that testing, hoping to have an answer of, yes, you have it so that you, you don't continue a family. But then when they come back and say, well, we don't know, it's really hard to feel comfortable you're still kind of in that um 
just you just don't know <laughs> you don't know what to do um, so over in the states do you have any kind of pre-genetic diagnosis testing or you no. don't no. oh okay well we, you have that here see what you can do here if you've already had a child with mito and you know what gene is affected um it's not a hundred percent of the time but depending on what gene it is there might be some tests that you can do with amniocentesis so you would have to be already pregnant, do the amniocentesis test, and then they, they would be able to test that one gene. Um, it doesn't work that way with all genes, but there are specific ones that they have been able to test, um, which, is, which is an option for us. Um, it's like there's one company in the US that can test for this one gene. Um, I'm actually gonna look it up right now so that I can remember what, it's, what the numbers are. Um, we just we just spoke with a, a genetic counselor on our last podcast, and she was able to kind of break it down so that people can understand how to read your genetic testing because it's also very confusing. There's all these numbers, and you you don't know what they mean. Uh, but hers is one three five one three, and then the variant is a ASP nine three nine ASN, which when you get your diagnosis and or your genetic test and you look down at that, you're like, what are all of these numbers and letters? <laughs> they just like throw the alphabet in the air and whatever like, landed on the floor. That's it. That's, that's the gene. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, I always say it's absolutely fascinating. It, it really interests me. I just wish it wasn't a part of my life, yeah. but um, I have, so Freddie has, a 96% mutation of the 8993 TG gene. I have it at 29%. Um, but over here, in terms of fertility, thing, things work a little bit differently. So we can, at 12 weeks, I think it is, um, if you're already pregnant, as long as they know the gene, any gene, for and that, that doesn't just extend to mito, it's anything they can test um but also we have something called pre-genetic pre, um, diagnosis so that is a form of ivf so that is when um they can test the embryos at i don't know if it's four days or it's some stage they can test the embryos and they can tell you the exact um for this is for maternally inherited they can tell you the exact percentage of the eggs and then you can have transferred a healthy egg in, in theory. Um, and also we have had approved, I think it's since 2018, mitochondrial donor IVF. Have you heard of that? Yeah. So that's been approved here since 2018 as well. Um, which for, for listeners, if you don't know what it is, it's where the, so in terms of Angie and Freddie, they're, their um, mito has come from the mother and the that part of that mitochondria is only inherited from the mother so that IVF is when that part of the egg is removed from the mother's egg and they put 
so the mother's egg and the father's sperm but then they put the mito from a, a woman who doesn't suffer from a maternally inherited mitochondrial disease their healthy mito in with that as well um, so it's still the mother's genetics other than her faulty mito gene um, thus can still still result in a in a healthy pregnancy with a healthy baby yeah, for, for our listeners too, another, if you want to do more research on this, it's called three-person um, IVF or three-person donation. It's two female uh, uh, eggs at the nucleus and the male uh, sperm. So they, what she was just explaining was they remove the nucleus from, from both, both samples and they replace yours with the healthy mitochondria and then fertilize that way. Um, it is a lot more practiced in the UK um, than it is here. Here, it has been deemed illegal. Um, it went up for um, approval in the US in 2019. It was actually the same month that Angie passed away because um, they were trying to get the research to prove to be here because right now everybody goes across seas to be able to get this done. Um, it was denied, but I feel, I feel like on that um, edge of science, we are a little bit closer with it getting approved here. Because so I think when they when they did, um, and I don't remember the name of the conference. I'd have to look it up. But you can you can actually watch the conference. They video streamed it, um, so you can hear. Uh, there was like four different doctors or researchers that spoke, and they all gave their reasons of why. It, we should be doing this research here in the U.S. Um, but I, I think they were on, I don't, I, I feel like there, there just wasn't quite enough votes for it, but it was super close. So I feel like each year, maybe within the next three to five years, it probably will get approved here. But the reason that it hasn't been is because they're afraid of, of uh, doctors or scientists um, pushing it too far and making perfect babies, um, which obviously leads into your sci-fi and movies of the perfect soldier type thing, um, which I'm not saying that's what would happen, but I think that's where the fear is. Um, but imagine what you can do with that kind of research and being able to eliminate um, diseases or just, just learning more about them and then how to eventually again find be on the cusp of research to be able to cure them later mm -hmm. and if we can do that there there has to be a way like the if we can remove the nucleus and the mitochondria and separate them and replace them with healthy then then we have to be somehow on the cusp of something i mean it's just hard to believe that we can do that and and not be close to finding a cure but yeah, design, the designer baby argument was something that was really um, all over the media here at the time. And I actually did a, a radio interview about it with the professor who started the ball rolling over here um, for three person or mitodonor IVF. Um, but yeah, it, I, can, I can understand people's fears. But as I said in that interview, this isn't about creating the, the perfect child. This is about a child's right to a life. And not having a death sentence from the day it was born, it's it is different. But that's interesting about the US. Um, I might look that up and follow it a bit more closely. 
Yeah, it was it was very interesting. The whole conference, I I watched it. Um, it was fascinating. Just just the things that they were talking about. I couldn't. I think the reason that they failed is because in the audience they only had medical professionals. They didn't have families, and I I feel if they had had actual families there to represent the other side of it, it would have moved um, the decision a different direction. Um, because you yes you have doctors and nurses affected because they've met a patient or, or somebody has, um, made an imprint on their life. But that is, there's no, there's, there's only a level of emotion there. Um, if, if you have families or parents or just people who have been affected by this, I think that they would see where this could actually lead rather than being scared of the designer baby. I mean, you can still have regulations on that. Um, Mm -hmm. But we'll see. I, I feel like that is closer in the next couple of years. I think if they do another conference and they keep um, trying that, um, that it'll, it will uh, get approved eventually. But there is a doctor in the United States that does do this, but he flies obviously to another country to be able to finish the process. So he will do the beginning stages, the interviews. He can extract your eggs here because that that part is all legal um but to do the splicing of like the mitochondria and the nucleus he has to fly to oh i i want to say it was turkey but i could be wrong um i i don't quote me on that one (laughs) um but he flies out there to finish the process and then um they have a bunch of healthy uh eggs already there waiting and so you would fly out to that country to be uh, inseminated, and then you would have to wait there. The process is long, so it's it's not inexpensive because you have to be there for a month or two, one for the process, and then making sure you stay pregnant, um, and then and then the testing after that to make sure. But um, yeah, it is it is interesting. There's a bunch of research out there, and then we're just on the beginning of that. Um, adventure <laughs> um, i know the biggest the biggest problem they're facing here in terms of it is um they don't have donors we don't have egg donors here there's like three years waiting list for for egg donors so a lot of people here fly to other places in europe to if they need eggs for egg donation because we just don't i don't know why they're not allowed to advertise here um for that service but because they don't have them they don't have the the donors for the nucleus for the mito um so yeah so i I don't know if they have any cases at the moment um but i know they were going to start a campaign to try and make it a, a bigger thing so that people were aware of it so you know education and and um advertising but not necessarily in a recruitment sense but just to put the information out there to to try and encourage people to step women to step forward yeah um that's interesting because i feel like in the united states fertility is such a huge thing i mean you don't i know so many people that have gone through fertility treatment donated their eggs you know different things that's that's interesting because you always feel like the uk is a little bit more progressive and a lot of the things that they do and medically in terms of what they allow um so that that's interesting to know yeah i think what what they can do is is 
like really on the cutting edge but it's just having the resources to, to do it unfortunately and I think if, if women aren't I don't know why you know I guess women are having having children later and later and there's I don't know what it's like in the US but it's quite strict um criteria to to donate eggs here you have to be I think it's under 30 and they prefer to you to have had your children first and and I think a lot of women these days or here don't aren't thinking about it until they're already in their 30s and whereas in in Europe they advertise in universities in some countries for um egg donors and they pay them and then they get to free some as an insurance policy but for regulation they're not allowed to do that here so they just don't have the donors is the egg donors is the one thing that they don't really have yeah it's interesting how each each country uh we all are working on the same thing and we each are the pieces of each other <laughs> um i had one more question about uh Freddie. um do you guys, what kind of medications or supplements is he on for like your Mito cocktail? So Freddie is on um, a supplement called Coenzyme Q10. Do you guys have that as well? Um, so that's the supplement he's on. He is, he's on a lot of medications for his symptoms. So he's on Keppra for his epilepsy. He's on glycopronium bromide to control his saliva and his secretions. He is on omeprazole and erythromycin for his reflux. He is on prophylactic antibiotics um, three times a week. He has those to try and keep any infection at bay. He has a steroid inhaler to try and help keep his lungs strong. Um, oh, we can can you still, did I go? Sorry. <laughs> um, he, what else is he on? Um, cetirizine for his hay fever. He's also on creams for his eczema, several creams and steroids for his eczema. Um, I'm just trying to picture everything. He's on laxatives and stimulants to help him go to the toilet uh, because everything's a bit sluggish. I think that might be everything. So yeah, it's amazing. Everything. It wasn't all introduced at once. We seem to every now and then we recruit something new. <laughs> every now and then a new symptom crops up, and we need something else to help. And you think, and I look at him, and I think he's doing so well. He's doing exceptionally well. He's wonderful. And then I open the med. I get like the monthly meds delivery, and I'm like oh this is you know this is why he needs this on a day-to-day -day basis yeah that's interesting that you said eczema i don't think i've we've spoken to anybody but troy has eczema really bad as well oh, and it's really. it's like oh my gosh the creams and the you know trying to stop him from scratching and it's just like ah that is no it's not I'm, it's never ending is it he's got his eczema <laughs> hay fever and asthma poor boy oh. Yeah. Troy takes Kepra as well to control his seizures. So yeah. has he been on it a long time? Um, he uh, had a couple seizures when he was about two. Um, and we didn't know if they were just febrile seizures because typically he was sick when he would have them. Um, but then 
Um, at one point he had a grand mal seizure and we took him into the emergency room um, and they, I don't even, I'm not even sure exactly what they did give him to stop him from seizing, um, but he was up for the next like 24 to 48 hours after taking that. And then we did um, a couple of tests and um, he ended up having seizures because of the tests. And we're like, just the doctor said, let's put him on Keppra. And he didn't have seizures for, um, once he was put on Keppra, he didn't have seizures for about seven years. And then um, probably about six months ago, he started having some absent seizures where he would just stare off into space and not respond to anything. Um, and we've never, he's never um, increased his dosage at all since he was two. So he was only on a very, very low dosage. So we just had to do multiple increases because he kept having um, absent seizures. Um, but he's been pretty good for about a month, about a little over a month. He hasn't had any, so, and he hasn't yeah. really had side effects as far as we know. I mean, he gets, one of the things we noticed is he would get a little irritable when we would increase it. Um, but we didn't know if that was him turning into a preteen or <laughs> the medication, who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because it, people have really variable experiences with Kepra, don't they? I know, Ashley, you've said about Angie before on another podcast, but Freddie's always been okay with it. And we've always, I mean, we monitor his weight at home. And as soon as his weight goes up, we're like, right, Kepra needs to, that, we need to adjust this because uh, we don't want seizures. Um, so we quite, we're quite on the ball with that our, ourselves. Um, I'm sure his medical team must think, no, oh gosh, taking matters into their own hands again. Um, <laughs> but, but he, Freddie has absences sometimes normally in the in the warmer weather um and he will have them for a few weeks and then we won't see any for ages but yeah exactly the same as troy he just and then he'll come out of it and carry on doing whatever he was yeah. doing before it's so surreal mm -hmm. um and i didn't even realize that was a, a seizure well i didn't there was a lot i didn't know before i had freddie <laughs> um but yeah, he's always been fine on Kepra. We were just about to introduce another drug, actually, because his, um, he was still having a lot of infantile spasms. He came, the steroids stopped all the spasms. He, he was on those for about a month, weaning on and weaning off included when he was eight months old. Um, but as soon as we stopped the steroids, they came back. Um, so then he went on to Kepra, and that reduced them, but didn't stop them. So we were just about to introduce another drug and he got, I think it was hand, foot and mouth and he was in hospital and he was really poorly and you shouldn't introduce another drug when they're sick. Um, so we waited for him to get better and he, he didn't have it. All of a sudden they'd stopped. Um, so we just kept him on, on the Kepra. And then as he's got bigger, absences come and go. So he has dystonia as well but he's not medicated for that because it's not, um, it doesn't cause him pain. And, and the medication for that is not ideal for a child who's got hypotonia because it would just make him even more floppy to relax him. So that's something that, um, it happens more at night. Um, but that's something I just, I'm, I fear will get worse as, as things change in his brain and I'm not looking forward to because I don't want to have to give him a medication because it's, it's a choice of one thing or the other and either thing is a, is a bad thing. 
do you know what I mean? All, all the medications he's on at the moment in, are a positive because they, they increase his quality of life for the better. It's not a case of weighing one thing up against the other um, and neither of them are very nice options. Yeah. Well, you'd mentioned um, what, I'm sorry, what was the medication that you give him for drooling and secretions? Glycoperonium bromide. Okay. Yeah. We had, because Troy drools a lot as well. And um, we've had many things mentioned to us like Botox and different things. And like you were saying for us, we're just like, well, you know, we don't want to give him one more medication necessarily. Um, but it, it was funny. We went to the dentist and she was like, well, it's actually pretty good that he drools because he's constantly cleaning out his mouth. So he's not getting as many cavities. I'm like, oh, there's a positive instead of just drool <laughs> falling all over my face all the time. And <laughs> so, yeah, we we definitely might look into that later just to, you know, it's, it's very much a social thing, I think, too, sometimes, you know, but. Well, for initially, Freddie was given a, a hyacinth patch. Have you heard of those little sticky you put behind the ear and it controls it controls the secretions like that but it made his eczema really really bad and he would just frantically pull at his ears but the the new drug he's on the glyco is a liquid and you can fluctuate it so he has a dose but if he's coldy we can either increase it or decrease it depending on if we need him to flush out and it's in the response is instant whereas the hyacinth dried everything up oh. whereas what he's on now um we've fluctuated it a lot recently because of hay fever um we just do it enough so that he doesn't choke on his secretions so it's just enough so that to keep them under control um but if we think his nose is a bit blocked we'll we will decrease it right down or even not give it to him so that that mucus can loosen up and he can he can clear his airways properly. So it, I really prefer it compared to what they put him on initially because that was, that was not nice. Um, that dried up everything and he, he suffered with that. And we, we had no um, control over, over what was happening to him. That's interesting. That sounds much better because I know the, it's the drug that our doctor suggested was not what you had mentioned. And he said it dried up everything and that scared me. I was like, well, I don't know if I want to dry up everything. <laughs> so that sounds like that's much more beneficial. Yeah, yeah I think, yeah. sadly, I think um, it's a case of a bit of trial and error to find out what's right for your child. And for a lot of people, that, that does apply to epilepsy medication as well, because some of them do have awful side effects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, you I mean when you get your diagnosis, it's true, you become, you become the nurse, the doctor, the researcher, the scientist, all of the things that you never dreamed would be part of your life. But it's crazy how normal that gets. And each day you wake up and you're like, mm, I don't know about this one. Uh, it might, uh, it's especially like you're talking about with hay fever and sinuses and allergies and all of that. You have all these different factors and you know your child the best because you're with them. Um, so it is important to listen to doctors, but it's also important to 
listen to yourself because you, you do know your child and you know what they're going through and, and what is normal and what is not. Exactly. And I think, and also I think the other thing is it's doctors are good for some questions, but fellow mito mums are better for the rest of them. And I think, I know we started this and you said that you found me on Instagram and it's, I never Googled when we got Freddie's diagnosis. I mean, we were explicitly told not to. Um, and if we had questions to go to medical professionals only, and it was very variable and we would see awful things if we Googled. Um, so the first thing I did was type in hashtags into Instagram to try and find, and I found someone and, um, and I just remember watching her videos of her daughter and just, and it gave me hope. And I, and at that time, that's what I needed. I needed hope, but I needed reality as well. I needed someone to say, this is the reality of our life. It's not perfect, but it's, it's not as bad as you think it is going to be right now. And that's, that's why I started writing about Freddie. And that's why I started sharing his, his journey. Our life isn't perfect. I love him more than anything. It's hard, but you have this gratitude for it and this thankfulness for it. And I, and I wanted to connect with other people who didn't know what to do after they heard those words and didn't know where to turn and didn't know. And, and I just, and I messaged this mum saying, we've just been told my son has mitochondrial disease. And, and I think it was just that. And I just, I don't know what to do. And it's, and you just need someone to take your, your hand, whether it's virtually or however, and say, it's not okay, but we're in it together. And I think and as amazing as Freddie's medical team are, and they are wonderful, it's, it's my mum friends and my, and my community. They're the ones who pick me up. They're the ones who answer, you know, my messages at whatever time with my questions and know how I'm feeling before I even say how I'm feeling. Um, and I know you guys have that too exactly why I wanted to start this podcast is for ex everything that you just said. It, it is, it is very important to listen to doctors and, and to hear what they have to say, but it is the other moms that are, that are going to know what to do and that have already experienced day-to-day -day life. And that, that goes for not just your mito cocktail or symptoms, but it also goes for education. It goes for therapy. It goes for resources that are available to you in, in what other country, state, city, town that you live in. Um, when we, we, we do a, um, a 5k here and whenever we got together, it, it, there was always something that popped up that a mom didn't know about or another mom suggested. And we were like, what is that? <laughs> um, so that's, that's why we did this podcast is because we, we know it's, it's a rough road and it's, um, there's no, it's not paved. It, it's a bunch of trails that go all over this mountain and you have to find the right trail. And if you find another mom on that trail, 
they're not going to leave you there and tell you to go another direction. They're going to hold your hand and walk a trail with you because they have either walked it before and know the direction or they haven't and they don't want you to be alone. And, and that's kind of what this whole, all of Mido is, is we are all in our own journeys, but we don't have to be it alone. And I think so much, yeah, so much information. I know, gosh, I, Ashley and I have known each other for a couple years now, but just even I've had a child with Mido for 12 years and there's things where I'm like, what? you guys are doing that or, you know, oh, you're trying that or I've never heard of that before. You know, it's, it's definitely, you learn so much that I didn't learn from any doctors. I mean, I've had a mito specialist that's one of the top in the United States ever since Troy was two years old. And there's still things where just by talking to other moms that I've learned that are beneficial, that you can try out, um, or even like I stay home and I actually, you know, am paid to take care of Troy where before I didn't even know that existed. And it's, you know, there's just so many different things that are so helpful that you learn um, by talking to other moms, other families that are going through this. So, um, yeah. And I, and I think with other moms, it's easier to open up conversations and, and things don't always work for everyone. Like for example, Kepra, but, but I've found personally with medical professionals, you might get different answers depending on who you're speaking to, but there's no further dialogue there and there's no further, well, this works for some people, that works for other people. That's just your answer and you're expected to take that answer and go with it and, and that's the only thing. And then, and this is what's happened at the weekends that I mentioned, earlier before is you speak to two different professionals and they give you different answers and you come away and you're just like but now I'm really confused and then you go and sit down with the mums for a coffee and you're like so I've just asked this question and Dr so-and-so said this and Dr so-and-so said that and now I don't know what to do and then it opens up the dialogue and they're like oh right you know and this did this for me and 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 you're like oh okay now I understand now I have more context now I know what I'm going to do, you know, and it's, that's the, that's the beauty of it. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about or anything that you wanted to tell the listeners um, that maybe you didn't get a chance to yet? I don't think so. I just, have I talked enough for you guys? Have I, have I said the sort of things you want me to say? <laughs> Absolutely. You've been wonderful. <laughs> it's not about like what, what we want to hear, what we want to talk about. It's, it's like we were just talking about. We just want to hear people's stories because I think that in itself helps other families to understand what they're getting into or what steps they need to take. And like, for example, you were talking about Freddie lost his ability to show emotions at one time. And I hear that so often. Um, Angie too, she lost her ability to show emotions. And um, actually it was, it was when she was on Kepra. Um, but as soon as we were able to get her the G tube and she started getting better nutrition and we were able to control supplements and things that she was getting. Um, she never, she never cried again, but she could show emotions. She told you when she was mad or she told you when she was happy. Um, there was never, I was never, um, 
confused about what she was trying to tell me. <laughs> um, she was just really happy and we just got, at, at that point, we were able to understand the difference between her loss of emotion and her, her um, choice to not cry. Um, but also with uh, talking about temperatures, temperatures have a lot to do with Mito, whether it's really hot or it's really cold. And, and so there are, there are a lot of things that show similarities between, I mean, everybody's got different symptoms and we all have different genetic um, results. Uh, and I think that that's also why it's important to talk about, I mean, we've, we've talked about Lee syndrome a lot and, and eventually we are going to branch out, but I think it's important because as Lee syndrome, there's so many different types of it. There's not one kind. And so, yes, it has the same name, but it's not the same disease almost because each gene is drastic. I mean, we, we talked to someone who was in his thirties that has Lee syndrome and, and each, each type just has so many, it has a different life expectancy or different types of, of symptoms. Um, but there are also similarities across the board too. And I think even though we talk about Lee syndrome a lot, it's the takeaway of any, any mito diagnosis because they all are similar. They all have those things that, um, uh, using the word again, is just similarities. Just because we don't have the and same gene or same diagnosis doesn't mean that it's not, that disease doesn't affect you in the same way. And I think with Lee syndrome specifically, the reason it comes up so much is because it's almost, as opposed to it being a specific diagnosis, it's a subcategory of mitochondrial disease because it covers so many individual mutations, effectively different, different versions. But you're right, they, they overlap in symptoms. So when people say Lee syndrome, people who don't live in our world presume they're all talking about exactly the same condition and you, you have to try and explain it further. Um, but yeah, it's, I just, I never knew something could be so complicated. <laughs> and, then I, and then I was told my son had mitochondrial disease. <laughs> And that's the other, the other part of it too. It, like you were saying, you'd never heard of it. Well, I had never heard of it either. And nobody in my, in my family or just life knew what mitochondria even was. And it's, it's so crazy to think that we don't know what that is. How? It's, it's 90% of your energy source. How does every single person have 90% of their energy come from this? And we've never heard the word. <laughs> I know. I, oh, uh, I was just going to say, I, I was a seventh grade science teacher for 15 years and we covered the mitochondria. And as soon as I had Troy, I was like, my kids are not leaving this classroom unless they understand the mitochondria. They know how it works. They know what it does. They know about mitochondrial disease. It was like, this is, yeah, like you said, how do we not know? It's so important and it affects so many other diseases so you know just aging in general it's like how is this not you know common knowledge but it is not even for doctors you know it's just you don't even get that lesson in nursing school and i just i just don't get it i don't understand how something that affects so much couldn't even have a couple of hours or a day 
in nursing school or, or medical school. It just doesn't make sense to me how we could not cover that. Well, it's, I mean, you say that not all doctors know about it and it's, we took um, Freddie to our local um, doctor for, I can't remember, it was probably a chest infection or something. And I remember the doctor turning around to me and saying, um, I've never, at that, at that time, it's, I should say, there was a, a child in the press here who was, um, his name was Charlie. His parents were trying to fundraise to take him to the America for treatment. So it, it was all over our media. It was everywhere. Um, and our, our doctor had obviously seen about Charlie. And we took Freddie. And bearing in mind, Freddie had been... Um, under him since he was born and I remember he said to me I'd never heard of this before Freddie and now all of a sudden it's everywhere isn't it and I just and I was just a bit dumbfounded that he'd said that when you've you know you've looked after him for two years but now it's been in the media and you're reading more about it but more importantly you put it kind of in your you did medical school for seven years and you still have no idea and I'm still telling you about my son because you're just treating him like any other child and I'm telling you I think he needs to go to hospital actually and perhaps we shouldn't be here um yeah. but yeah it's uh I think James calculated once in terms of diagnosis and doctors and things and over here like a doctor will come across a child with that diagnosis one every seven once every 70 years so basically once in their career on the basis of um, how many children were actually getting the diagnosis and as we know not every not it takes a long time perhaps they don't get it perhaps they get misdiagnosed um, so, so it kind of makes sense and we've been to appointments before where other doctors have come in and said oh we've heard um about freddie do you mind if we meet him we've never met a child like him before and and there was a phase where we just felt like we were in a zoo because everyone was being brought over to meet him and and then sitting down and saying do you mind if we ask you questions and asking us lots of questions about him which is lovely and you want to, to educate as much and, and the fact that they want to talk to the parents directly because they know the most is, is wonderful. But there's also an element of you're there to see a professional as well. And you're, you want to extract knowledge from that professional. And actually, sometimes emotionally, you're not in a place where you want to have your brain picked apart about it. I just need to switch over. To, I need to unplug this. Yeah, I think also it's hard um, with doctors, uh, especially older doctors, um, their education kind of stops. If they, if they don't have a child or if they don't have a diagnosis that comes into their career, they, they don't really continue that education. And I've came across a few times with a couple of doctors that had old education. Um, they, the biggest example is, is that this is not, there are different ways that this can be inherited. It's not necessarily maternally inherited. Yes, ours is, because um, that's the, the gene that was affected, but even that, it, it, it's not 100%. Um, it, it can come from um, the father's side. It can come from a mixture of just 
a one in a million chance that two people met and, and their, their genetics, the, what came over didn't, didn't work out or um, there was a clash or something is missing. And there's just so many different levels. And, and it is very fascinating when you, when you go through that and it's hard to understand that a doctor would know that now. Um, and we've talked about another podcast just over the last 10 years. So there's just so much that has happened in 10 years or even five years. Um, and that's part of the reason why I think Megan started doing genetic testing again, because because the last time that it was all done was with old research and now we have new things and it's, it's, it's definitely important to always expand your education and always, and as a, as a parent to continually try to learn these things because what you knew a couple of years ago is old. Um, things are, technology changes so much and, and yes, we might not be close to a cure, but we are closer to different things that will hopefully lead to a cure in the future. But at least right now, it's the understanding of breaking things down and figuring out just genetics in general. Yeah, like Troy's doctor, um, the geneticist that we saw said, you wouldn't have received these results 10 years ago. So Troy's been going without this diagnosis. Um, you know, he, he was born with the Malin syndrome. So he's just been Lee-like for so long and now, Obviously, the you know genetic tests have um, have improved so much that he has a completely different diagnosis now that is his primary disease. And so it is. It's it's amazing to see um, how far we've come and the advancements in the medical field and genetic testing. Um, and it and it is it is important. You know, it's important for you know even if there's no cure or you know just to know what your child has. It's it's an important thing. Well, we want to for Mito. It's it is an exciting time. If <laughs> it sounds weird to say, but it is because research has come on so far. And I remember when we left Freddie's appointment for his for the specific diagnosis, and my husband turned around to me and said, "Well, if it's going to be anything, we would rather it's." rare because then they will be putting money into it they will be researching they will be doing everything they can um instead of thinking they already know and they already know everything um and it's it's so many even since freddie's diagnosis so many exciting things have happened in terms of fertility progression and and, di and diagnosis and it is quite exciting to know where it, it could go in the future it's just it's bittersweet absolutely well we want to thank you for joining us we really appreciate you taking your evening and, and talking to us yes um, it was so nice to meet you yeah thank you i just i feel like i could talk to you two forever i feel like can we do this every week <laughs> i know i know i was thinking the same thing there were so many things that you were saying they were like oh my gosh i feel the exact same way she does <laughs> absolutely <laughs> uh, well thank you for joining us and thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to the podcast and um, we hope that we were able to bring another story or maybe something that was similar that is happening in your life. Um, if you have any questions or if you want to suggest any topics or anyone that you would like us to talk to, please email us at mitopodcast at gmail. 
you can find us on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Um, we will try to get back to you as, as fast as we possibly can um, on any of those platforms. But again, thank you so much for, for listening to us. It's because of you that we can continue to um, reach out and, and hear these stories and it's important to be able to get them out so that others can hear um, that you're not on this journey alone. So thank you again and we hope that you have a great day.